Hello, my name is Jack McDonald, and this is This Is My Favourite Thing. I'm here today with Connor Bateman and Felix Hubble of Static Vision. Uh, Static Vision is an Australian independent film collective, screening premiere, genre and retrospective features and shorts in Sydney, Melbourne and online. Connor's also a managing editor at 4x3, an Australian online film journal, and they both worked behind the scenes with the Sydney Film Festival. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you no for worries. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I thought we would start with Felix. So, Felix, did you want to talk about the first time you kind of encountered what your favourite thing is and maybe just kind of an, an introduction to why you feel it is something you'd pick as a favourite thing and recommendation? I don't know how I came across this. And, um, <laughs> but That's how I, the internet works. Yeah. Exactly. It feels like one of those videos, yeah. So it's a video from September 12, uh, 2008, called Competiting Eating Icon, A Stanton Islander Retires. Uh, it's <laughs> uploaded by a guy called Dominowski. I'll tell you what, when you, when you asked us through the podcast, I was like, it's really hard for me to pick out a favorite song, favorite album, favorite film, anything, because everything yeah. kind of just blows in together and it switches so much over time but uh mm-hmm. this video has been on my mind for at least 12 months and i would then say it is probably my favorite online video let's say it's basically a video of the san Gennaro feasts cannoli eating contest um but <laughs> the video feels like a sort of like brooklyn film scene short film very safety brothers or or any of the sort of factory 25 gang mm-hmm. and it's basically a great of competitive eating within that scene uh retiring as he's had a kid and that is intercut with footage of that year's cannoli eating competition which he's not taking part in um and then the award ceremony for that but there's a bunch of like weird right. anachronistic like insert shots that don't make any sense of crowd members uh, mm. who aren't sort of placed within the frame of what's going on around them. Yeah, the edit's really strange. The delivery of the announcer on stage is very odd and just kind of feels like a perfect exercise in screenwriting, some sort of like weird satire about what it means to be an American or a Staten Islander or something like that. Uh, but it's all authentic right. and it's all real. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel um, in choosing it, it's kind of your way of, I suppose, honoring that kind of online bizarre video footage stuff, like video clips that I don't know. I don't know what your relationship yeah. is to stuff like that because it feels it feels odd, obviously. But yeah. I guess why? What's your relationship to that kind of style of? Yeah, stuff? yeah. I, I guess um, I, I've spent a lot of time up late on uh, YouTube rabbit holes and other rabbit holes just kind of clicking around online. And that's definitely how I came mm. across this. But I, I'm now just recalling as we discuss it, um, I was really struck by it and actually had a pretty big emotional response to the video in a way that I don't normally have with online detritus, just garbage. Right. It, there's something there's something very um, human about the video and like the line between sort of like mm. irony and sincerity within what's happening in the film and the yeah. edit is kind of really blurry. I actually, yeah, I actually found it like held a lot of emotional resonance when I, when I came across it and I immediately sent it to a couple of people. I think I sent it to Connor and, and a few other people to be like, you got to check this out. It's a video on YouTube with less than 500 views from, you know, 12 years ago. Or it would have probably been 11 years ago at that time. I still got less than 500 views. Although maybe we'll push it over that marker. 601. 601 will do it um no but uh we watch a lot of short films and feature films and stuff that really kind of strives for 
a level of authenticity or to kind of tell a story in an interesting way that feels not contrived. And there was something about this mm. shot where I was like, in, in that brain meld of every short film and internet video you watch that all kind of melds together. Um, and there's a lot of trash out there and a lot of pretty mediocre stuff. It was really strange to me that someone had kind of struck gold out of yeah. nowhere. You know, it's kind of opens your mind to the possibilities of like what other videos are out there that kind of do similar stuff. And yeah, it has actually just really stuck with me. And immediately when you were like, yeah, do you, do you want to come on the show and maybe talk about some movies? I was like, there's this one thing I do actually want to talk about because it does mean quite a bit to me and it's this specific right. video. And I know like it could seem like a bit of a flex or like a weird show off thing it's like i've, I've yeah it's like the... let me find the most bizarre thing anyone's yeah, ever yeah. heard of but it's no, not like totally. i mean felix what you were saying about finding you know a sub 500 view youtube video that suddenly yeah. resonates as film that's not yeah. dissimilar to i mean like the first thing that came to mind just then when you said it was this this ken jacobs film called perfect film and all it is is he was buying film stock from a news organization that was going out of business so he would have film stock um, and yep. he got this reel and it was just like B-roll from a news reporter on the day Malcolm X was assassinated. And yeah, so you get interviews with these people and then you get the second camera. So obviously camera A and camera B had been put onto the same reel at the end of the day. And yep. it's like, I think it's 20 minutes or so and you watch it through. And then of course you watch it again through, but from a different angle. And that's yep. it. He didn't right. change anything. He didn't touch it. He just called it perfect film and then released it. Mm. And it's brilliant. Like yeah, it is, yeah. you know, there's these accidental discoveries that are somehow more authentic or, or achieve something by accident that, that filmmakers are really striving for. And I think the yeah. hot dog competition, well, it's not even a hot dog competition, it's it a cannoli, cannoli competition. It's a cannoli competition. Of course, like, you know, there's aspects of that which, which speak to the American myth and the, the way that like fairs and carnivals and stuff play out. That It seems kind of alien from an Australian perspective. To be like even just the concept of like food eating competition between a heap of people, but yeah, I, I feel like in some ways yeah. it really it really summarizes a lot of stuff about human nature. The spirit. I mean, the emotional resonance thing you picked up. I, I mean, the first time I watched it, I was I think I was just perplexed. Yeah, and then I watched it again, and I was kind of repulsed and yeah. intrigued. I've watched it a few times since, and I think yeah, it's all the different pieces. You're kind of perpetually in a subjective position like you're always yep. kind of in the crowd and you're one of the crowd but you're also given this perspective of like other spectators and moments and hearing different things that you kind of feel really dislocated from it and even though you mm. have that intimacy i suppose you feel like you're you're there and you're not there even when the interview's happening because yeah the the guy who made the film is interviewing the guy is retiring and the audio that he's mm. recorded himself hasn't been cleaned up and is really, really quiet on the soundtrack. And then the answer comes in really loud. And there's just little aspects to it like that. That, um, yeah, I, again, I, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, I guess, post-Mumblecore-y sort of films that strive for this sort of affect. But this one feels real. Yeah. Like, there's nothing contrived about it. It's all intentional and accidental. Even, even the copyright signal at the end is just like this dated, uh, you know, yeah. version of stuff that was happening on early YouTube. <laughs> with the like, editing is great. Yeah. It. yeah it's this yeah. bizarre like because when i when i watched it it's like it just it was hard for me to keep track of like it's a retirement video 
because it yep. kept mm. cutting to like here's an eating competition but here's some guy talking about it wait is this guy related to it wait what's going on like when yep. is this yeah. is this temporarily yep. how is this playing out and then it what? ends with the young guy winning it's like yeah what like the b plot becomes <laughs> the a plot all of a sudden yeah yeah and it's, it's not only that the young guy is like he's he's doing the thing so i've watched a bit of competitive eating stuff he's got his headphones still in sure. which is like a thing that mm-hmm. atlas who's one of the biggest competitive eaters does whenever he does his things and he does a little like stuffy youtube where he'll be listening to like butt rock while eating the food but you can't hear the butt rock but he still commentates over this thing while he's clearly completely like distant from the viewer in his own world of eating challenge but he's doing that and there's just guys around him with like cannoli all over their faces and they're wearing (laughs) suits but then like weird hats um yeah the whole thing just kind of doesn't make sense but it sort of does (laughs) and yeah i don't know it just really really sticks with me so yeah that is my favorite uh video Looking into the um, channel itself, I don't know how much you know about that Dominowski. That's the channel itself, right? Mm, yeah, I know absolutely nothing about it. But uh, okay. shoot me with it. I'd love so, to respond. <laughs> yeah, so I did a bit of research into it and I watched like a whole bunch of random videos for it. I'll, I'll like read some of the titles of these to give people an idea. But what it is, it actually seems to be Staten Island has a newspaper called the Staten Island Advance. And so, basically, this seems to be their very early, very rudimentary attempt at making video content in relation to the newspaper. I assume it was some, like, film student kid or something that was hired, and, they've yep. like, the entirety of the channel is just composed of all these completely random clips kind of shot and filmed in this really almost B-movie yep. quality way, and yet it, it captures that kind of authenticity and that, like, intimacy that I suppose a news report would, but without any real technical skill, mm. I guess, in the actual creation of it. So it's not trying to be clean, it's just... It just exists, yeah. So yeah. I guess, I, I don't know, what do you think about it being something that was created to, like, archive an event? I think it's it's kind of interesting to find that out because I assume it must be something like that, right? But the way mm. in which I interact with the internet, I think around uh, most people interact with the internet now is, like, through clips and through links and through Facebook posts and stuff like that as opposed to um, delving through stuff in its Mm. actual context and yeah it's interesting that you raise that because it kind of in some ways does remind me of um heavy metal parking lot and the work of sorry jeff krulik and john hayne um who were doing sort of similar stuff they're like straight out of film school have access to cameras go and film an event and cut it into a video that uh you know tells the story of that event but effectively has culturally become and i don't think this film is ever going to get anywhere but their work has effectively culturally become short films in and of themselves when they were just setting out to Mm. be like oh let's just go film film a heavy metal parking lot's a great example let's go film these fans of metal music in a parking lot to see what's happening in our town right now the context of what happened with that short is a really big tape trading short in the late 80s and early 90s and kind of just happened to disseminate across the world despite just being sort of like a bootleg tape. Now you raise the new stuff, that's possibly like the structure that it's being created in allows all of the stuff that I read into it and that reappropriation of, of meaning or whatever to kind of come through because it gives it a bit of rigidity 
So I think also because it's it's like that news report thing, but it's it's decontextualized. Like you watched it without even knowing that's what it was, and so it yeah. kind of has that attempt at a style or the like hint of a style, and yet is it captures something completely different, I guess. Yeah, and I'm trying to work out if it's a joke, if it's if it's real. Kind of came to the conclusion after watching it three or four times, it is it is real. And um, my my theory, and I really should have checked the account, but my theory has always been that it was just a fan. A Staten Island local who was a fan of competitive eating. I'll read you some of the other uh, the titles of some of the other videos on it just to give a give a bit of a hint of what that kind of actually looks like. So one's called New York Police Department Ice Rescue Drill. Incredible. Kids Against Tobacco Film Festival. Not Your Average Cows. <laughs> Bus Crash in Park Hill. And one of the most popular videos is How to Make Fresh Mozzarella Cheese from Curd. That sounds so, like my five new favorite videos. I will um, just read you uh, a little clip from this journal thing, if you'll indulge me. So it's called Embalming the Obscure, the Rise of B-Movie Cinephilia. This work of collecting and preserving the past is marked by the increasing importance of the fragmentary, the clip, the tribute, the ephemera, where many different pieces fit together like a puzzle, and where the ludicrous, the ugly, the obscene, the erotic, and the horrifying come together to construct a universe of the obscure. Today, a vibrant community of B-movie cinephiles operates within the folds of the internet. Born largely within the networked environment of the internet, this cinephilia has revived the forgotten history and aesthetic of B-movies, now openly celebrated on internet forums, movie blogs, YouTube channels, and Facebook and Twitter pages. Um, yeah, and, and reading into that, I think, I mean, the first thing that came to mind when I watched it is kind of that B-movie quality I mentioned, how mm. it's kind of filmed on like a TV camera. Yep. And it's so so messy and the audio is so messy and it kind of captures that. How does it kind of tie into that like B-movie quality, I guess? Mm. What, I th- what do you think that kind of relationship is, if, if any? Yeah, I think that passage you read actually probably pretty acutely describes my relationship to that video and to a lot of stuff online. Even just when you were saying that, it makes me think about all the conversations I can have with like Connor about vines we've seen or other friends mm. about like, memes from four years ago that we can still remember acutely and i i do think it is sort of that <laughs> the, the way like framing it as contemporary b-movie fandom makes a lot of sense and i i'm yeah. definitely from a big b-movie background and also yeah the new york independent film scene and the la independent film scene and stuff and i i think that this kind of ties together a lot of aspects of that even though it's accidental in this case, there is often an intentional sloppiness to the films because the point mm. is less so about the construction and more about the way the story is told or like, you know, visual gags and the stuff like that. content stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And the content the content here is good. Like for two, two minutes and 30 seconds, you're going to get like seven or eight different things. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great value for time. Yeah, absolutely. Rewatching it a lot recently, it's the, the two women that seem to be near the front of the crowd there's just an insert shot of them without the stage framed, not looking at the stage, talking about something else, obviously, as the guy is giving yeah. the interview to Lipsitz. I guess it is important. They're not listening. They're not listening. Yeah. yeah. It's just there. I'm like, why, why would newsworthy. you in? It gives a short texture. And I, I feel like that um, amateur approach to stuff is what gives a lot of B-movies texture as well. I kind of flagged that B-movie thing as well because I feel like you guys have kind of, I mean for the screenings that you've done and now the online screenings you're doing, a lot of them are kind of centred around this idea of 
highlighting the obscure and mm. exploitation B-movie stuff, et cetera, that kind of falls into that category. So mm. I guess, yeah, kind of drawing that connection, you, it really makes sense from that context why this is something that would kind of resonate with, with you. I, we, don't, we don't have like a formal approach necessarily to showing a lot of B-movie stuff, but I, I do think I'm going to yeah. speak on behalf of Connor here as well. We are very much the Ian Barr slide whistle from high culture to low culture. It's a tweet that is like very much uh, infamous in in the circles we run in. That idea of like this just hilarious signaling that people have about like I can love an exploitation movie, but also Bergman. To us, it's all the same. (laughs) High culture, low culture. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's like we yeah we're not going out and seeking necessarily stuff that is underseen to make a point but we are definitely pursuing the ethos in, in at least our online screenings of promoting short film promoting things that we think might have been slightly out of the way for people i mean there are stuff we've played that have less than 200 views on online like there was a a short film by a Russian artist, Alexander Radin, called This Water Gives No Images, that I found just trawling through Vimeo. And it, it had, you know, it had played in galleries. It wasn't some unknown thing, but no one really knew it was online or on Vimeo. And it was just, I think it's one of the best things we've played as part of one of our streams. And it's not necessarily the best because it's unknown, but because it's the kind of thing we think people that tune into the streams would find interesting or perhaps challenging. Well, it's a, it's a provocation too. It's a... I mean, the video Felix has selected for this is is somewhat the same in that it's bewildering. We both have a very rabbit hole mentality <laughs> um, about right. like when we get interested in topics, we just go on weird excursions. When I'm programming short films, I pick a loose theme or I find mm-hmm. one short and go, this is what I want to build a program around. And then I rabbit hole. It's not like it, it is pursuing that that drive to find something interesting that fits and i hope that in in the way felix and i select films we want to like impart that desire into the viewers to go i've seen this now i need to find more yeah yeah definitely a lot of programming has a limited view of cinema as it's like this thing you do in a quiet room with the lights down and all that sort of stuff to highlight the best i suppose yeah exactly but what we're doing right now we're all stuck at home or relatively stuck at home depending on where you are in an online chat room with our friends watching videos and you know it's okay to have a chat it's okay to have a bit of fun and stuff like that and we'll we'll save yeah, the right. serious stuff for later and when we when we're talking about like high, high culture low culture stuff i think it's really important to remember that there are a bunch of really bad well-respected well-regarded movies that are just technically poorly made not interesting trash and there's a heap of b movies and trash that is like actually really subversive interesting well-made we don't have like a manifesto which is like this sort of stuff but the the underlying thing for me and Connor when we program is it's like not necessarily do we like the film but do we think the film has value like do we think it's good to kind of sum it all up i suppose for someone who's listening yeah so theoretically, if you to program this uh, short video into mm. into our show, I guess, what do you feel you're kind of trying to provoke or make someone think or feel or, or react to in, in this video? Why do you think someone yeah. should take the time, the two minutes and 30 seconds? And That's watch, the first reason. Watch two, this. two minutes and 30 seconds. Also, like rabbit holing and just kind of following what you're interested in and rewatching stuff that you're interested in is always really important. But yeah, it, honestly, picking this short was mostly, well, I'm, again, calling it a short internet video. But to me, it's, it's more interesting than a lot of feature films and shorts I've seen. I really do want more people to kind of have a look at it. 
right. it, it's really difficult for me to nail down a favorite film or a favorite album or a favorite book or anything like that. This is sure. probably, if not my favorite, at least in the top five internet videos I've ever seen. I do honestly come back to it every few weeks and watch it again. There's always something new there. It's a brisk watch. It's interesting. It speaks to a bunch of stuff about the internet and about culture and about the way that we interact with each other and film and, and our communities, like our more insular communities, like, you know, Staten Island or whatever. Um, yeah, I actually yeah. just think there's a, a real, accidentally, of course, but there's a lot of value to this. I, I think that um, filmmakers normally go out and they want to, like, say one thing with their film. And you might get a really good filmmaker who wants to say a handful of things and experiment with a couple of different techniques. This by being, like, non-specific there's so much in there that speaks to so many different things and so much to grab your attention and to hold on to and to reevaluate your take, previous takes and everything else that, yeah, I just really think that there's a lot of value in this video specifically. But yeah, this is one that I'm just yeah. going to say, if you want to go see something really cool, go watch Competitive Eating Icon, A Staten Islander Retires <laughs> yeah. on YouTube. It's it has great. that really kind of porous quality thinking about it in the way that you can kind of go into it with whatever you want to think about it or yeah. kind of with no expectations or unexpected, and you're kind of going to like weave your way through it and yeah. process whatever you're thinking about, I think, in relation to it, yeah. Completely, completely. Great. And, yeah, again, you know, I love a lot of the stuff that, say, Adult Swim does, but um, Adult Swim makes these sorts of videos, but they make it with intent and intention, and it's really kind of beautiful yeah. when you stumble across stuff like this that's not made with that intent or attention, um, and there is like a level of earnestness to it. And this is a very earnest, very weird, very silly and frivolous and kind of, yeah, ironic, sincere, who knows, video. It's, it's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, to jump off of that ironic slash sincere remark, I think uh, that's a good intro into, into Connor's choice for a favorite thing and the and the dichotomy there so maybe connor do you want to uh introduce what your favorite thing is maybe if you remember the first time you listened to it or a time that stood out so i mean like felix when you asked us to pick a favorite thing i drew like a gigantic blank because i don't sure. think i have a favorite film tv show music thing color album book just purely the way i think i approach art is very ephemeral or at least like transitory it is like this is good now this is useful now um or this right. is relevant now but i try not to necessarily peg things as like this is my favorite and i will keep returning to it perhaps that's bad um but but something that did come to mind was a song and i guess i'd say it's my favorite pop song because right. since hearing it for the first time in 2015 i like I listened to it a surprisingly large amount of time, despite the fact it's not on Spotify or any streaming service. It's it's this track called Easy Mix by Easy Fun. Um, Easy Fun is uh, a UK-based producer, um, actual name Finn Keen, um, a producer for PC Music. And Easy Mix, which was released in July 2015, but I don't think I heard it until later that year, um, is, right. is not so much one song as it is this strange sort of seven-minute mix of three songs, an Ariana yeah. Grande song, an ABBA song, and a Jesse J song. And I can remember the first time I started sort of getting into PC music. For those of you who don't know, it's a UK record label, and all of their music is like sort of like 
warped pop music, very digital sounding, often a lot of monotonous singing. It's like anti-pop isn't quite right because I think that everything they do comes from a clear place of love and reverence. They're very pro-pop. I think what makes them so interesting is this sense of detachment. Like they're they're trading in the the cliches of pop music, but doing it in a way that admits that they're cliches, and that makes it thrilling almost. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. the the first time I probably heard Easy Fun, the the musical act, was on um, PC Music Volume One, which was like a compilation album that they released in 2015. And mm-hmm. I was at MIF in Melbourne, Melbourne International Film Festival, in August that year. Um, and remember just like listening to that album like non-stop through most of the festival and the album ends with an easy fun song called Laplander and I think it's probably the sort of highest energy song on that album at least it like it starts at almost its highest point uh, and it's right. like many songs on that album a complete earworm um, but but easy mix that the track I have selected just I don't know it's dateless almost um, like it's, it's, it's three remixes in one, um, a remix of Ariana Grande's Break Free, the track she did with Zed. Um, then it's a, a very slowed down section of the chorus of Abba's, um, Lay All Your Love On Me. And then it's a extremely euphoric remix of Jesse J's song Domino. And I think that's what, at least when I first heard it, um, really won me over was this like pure ecstasy of that remix. But even in like thinking about the song for this podcast, uh, I realised I hadn't listened to the originals. I'd listened to the ABBA track uh, a lot. I really liked that ABBA track, but at the time there's no way I picked that it was Lay All Your Love On Me because of the way it slowed down. And I knew the Jesse J song, like the chorus mostly from radio. Like when I first heard Easy Mix, I knew I knew the song but didn't know what it was. Um, mm-hmm. And as for the Ariana Grande track, I hadn't actually listened to it. I listened to it this afternoon because so I was like oh, I should check it and see if it's what I remember it being <laughs> it's not very good at least it's like it's very oh, dated Ariana oh, As, I mean I think Sorry. Ariana Grande is really good but I think that track in particular has dated really poorly as has Jesse J's Domino Zeb was at the top of his game then it sounds so much like the other Zed tracks and they all sound terrible now yeah it's like it dates really quickly but what I think is interesting is that I don't think Easy Mix dates I don't think it can date I think it sounds as fresh and interesting now as it did in 2015 Uh, Mm -hmm. and that might be because the style of sort of nightcore and weird pitched up remixes has continued and almost reached sort of a zenith in the last three years that it's still relevant but yeah because it's not like the normal remixes either it's it's like tearing them apart it's just taking the vocals doing something entirely new with the background it's pitching them up speeding them up and then just in the middle of the track having this complete come down of at the time i assumed it was some strange gregorian chant but it is the chorus to abba's um lay all your love on me which is a gregorian chant other songs or other works of art i suppose where you kind of point to that idea of kind of ripping it apart and kind of tearing it apart and that kind of remix or kind of collage culture has a tendency to kind of point towards it being a criticism of that genre or culture or the original stuff. Mm. But I don't think this song has that quality really at all. So I guess, do you agree with that? And I mean, what I do agree. you think it is that... I think it has reverence for those songs, but I think what it's doing 
Um, and I guess this is something that appeals to me and the, the video work that I make is that it, it's able to find something beautiful amidst like a hole that might be a bit flimsy. As in, mm-hmm. I think by rescuing the melody of both Break Free and Domino and just like like being like, this is an incredible melody, it gets stuck in your head. We're going to honour its ability by changing how you perceive it, by speeding them up, yeah. by creating these really interesting um, sonic environments for it and then putting that Gregorian chant section in the middle to force you to reset, to kind of reckon with what you've just heard, which is what mm. makes the Jesse J thing so astonishing is that it just comes back in and it's the the biggest part of the song. I don't think collage is necessarily always critical, whether that's in literature, like the work of Kenneth Goldsmith, or in video work, I mean, we've screened quite a few collage-based things on our stream, like Jonathan Culp's film Taking Shelter, about Canadian tax shelter films, Guy Madden, Evan Johnson, and Galen Johnson's The Green Fog, which is about remaking Vertigo using only clips of other films and TV shows set in San Francisco. I think, like, collage works and, and found footage remix works, whether audio or video, are mostly about finding new meaning through recontextualization. Like mm-hmm. finding an ability to appreciate elements within a whole, I think is maybe the right. Like you can admire like the shot composition, or you can admire the the rhythm of something. Oh, I was just gonna say if I can add to that, I, I definitely get the vibe that um sort of the PC mo- music movement and the sort of hundred gigs hyperpop uh, in terms of having an appreciation for the tracks and recontextualizing sounds to create something new. As opposed to say, mm-hmm. uh, like Banksy's Paris Hilton prank, um, when that's hot came out and he changed all the CDs with his criticism tracks based on <laughs> exploiting a track out and building it. I, I really do think that uh, all that stuff is instead, yeah, continuing that sort of postmodern approach or accidentally postmodern approach to um, pop music than it is. Uh, well, there's sincerity too, though. It's like yeah, real the Banksy thing reminds yeah. me of just like ad busters and how in like the the early 2000s ad busting was considered like transgressive postmodern and it's all kind of like really hacky and dodgy but i think what comes through i mean even the video you had felix it is like this this strange sincerity this like commitment to the notion of sincerity in maybe a format that might seem ironic that or insincere that. yeah yeah it's like i mean like that's the thing with pc music is it's very easy to write it off as irony but they I mean, they clearly love it. Like, <laughs> there's there's such yeah. an incredible reverence for pop music structure. You know, there's there's a Hannah Diamond song, Pink and Blue, that basically, like, distills pop songwriting. It's, like, incredibly clever, very catchy, like, about the binary, like, man and woman, love song, romance song, what does that sound like in, you know, pop music from 1980 to 2015 in one song. Mm. Um, and it nails it. I think a lot of the things that they've done in pop over the, like, since 2012, I guess, has really, like, they've changed the conversation and at least shifted how certain acts are performing. A number of those PC music producers have kind of, I suppose, more so in the last three or four years have worked with a lot of acts like, I mean, I guess like Charlie XCX and Sophie and whatnot to develop their sound. And it's interesting, this kind of development of this whole genre that I suppose they really pioneered, which is kind of beyond pop. I don't know what you would call it exactly. You call it Nightcore? Is that... No, Nightcore is like a... 
I mean, maybe it's bad that I've admitted I know what Nightcore is. Um, Nightcore is like a SoundCloud um, thing about people taking pop songs and pitching them up much higher. And right. they're often great, like slightly sped up, slightly pitched up Carly Rae Jepsen songs. They're wonderful. Right. Um, yeah. They uh, can be quite uh, uh, overwhelming to people who aren't familiar with Nightcore, but really good. I think... Yeah. I, I, I still I group them under pop honestly I, I think we've gotten to the point where there's like enough um, mainstream artists who they're produ- yeah, producing for and there's enough popularity there that I think we can kind of just call it pop now yeah well mm. it's like they've they've had you know like fingerprints over like AG Cook who is the founding one of the founding members of PC Music is Charlie XCX's like creative producer and has produced her last three album or album like works yeah, I mean, like, you just look at Dylan Brady, who's producing for everybody right now as well. Like, that's going to become even more of a thing, I reckon. And even, like, you know, like Caroline Polachek going from Chairlift, um, which was a really great band, to making music with PC Music collaborators, most notably Daniel Hall. Um, so, like, yeah, it's... I think it's more the pop world is catching up to them. <laughs> and what we're seeing right. is... I mean, it's the same in rap with Odd Future. What we're seeing is Outsider and Strange in... 2012 is now suddenly what people want to get to yeah completely and like you know there's more uh focus on cloud rappers now than there is on you know sort of established names you know i reckon if jay-z dropped a new album and there was like a little someone dropping an album that week that was particularly big that might even outstream them i don't know there's a big call (laughs) yeah yeah it's a weird, it's a weird time for it's a weird time for all all media in that in that respect i i do think there's like the, the promise of the internet as this like transgressive force that upends everything um, is actually kind of coming to fruition just 15 years after everyone said it was doing that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely like a hugely different approach to music and like st- just streaming stuff and the concept of like a viral hit on TikTok or whatever um, has completely changed the way like what's popular, yeah. what's not popular. I think also them deliberately kind of, I mean, for PC music stuff, Correct me if I'm wrong, none of it, except for, like, AG Cook stuff uh, and some of the stuff that they've produced for isn't really available on, like, Apple Music and Spotify and whatnot, and they kind of have that credo or manifesto of kind of making it free, making it available, making it... I mean, they they, they used to. I'm not, I don't think that's the case anymore because you can listen to... You can't listen to Easy Mix, but you can listen to Easy Fun stuff, GFOTY's stuff, AG Cook, Daniel Hall. I think that's just because what happened was... Uh, they changed the Spotify uh, rules so it was easy to get your own tracks on um, up there. Right. And they just haven't been copyright flagged by the original artists yet. So none of that stuff's up right. there legally. Um, yeah. But-, but I guess in a way that's kind of... Pi- uh, well, I kind of see it as a way of kind of them pioneering treating music in a, in a way that I guess Bandcamp does or I guess SoundCloud inherently kind of does where it's... It's like the YouTube of music, and it's kind of those platforms that give it a, a place to thrive. SoundCloud is the home of, of PC Music. It's where stuff got posted, where demos got posted. They do a thing called New Music Friday. No, it's called Perfect Music Friday, which makes a lot more sense from PC Music. And it's just a playlist on Spotify and I think Apple Music or Pop Music. But if you go to the website of the playlist, it, it's like some fake company that's creating the playlist, but at the bottom there's like a download URL to a series of remixes that aren't available anywhere. Um, I like that about them. Like, I mean, even that format is something that Brockhampton did recently during lockdown. They just released 
tracks for free secretly online to sort of go around their record deal. And half of the tracks they released are some of the best stuff they've done. Um, and so I think it's interesting to see a return to that internet release model for certain artists like that, that you saw in, I guess, when we were in high school, Felix, and people were just like dropping MP3s everywhere they could because it seemed to be the new normal. I suppose something that came up for me in thinking about it is kind of how unique the sounds in that song are and kind of the ideas and reinterpretations, I suppose, and, and kind of their music generally. It would, I think, be kind of incomprehensible for someone before... I don't know, like, well, in the in the 20th century. So I think it's kind of, it's quite funny and apt that they're called PC music, and I suppose it's music that is inherently something that could kind of only be built, designed, and developed on computers. So I guess I was curious what you guys thought of their, like, using computer technologies to kind of develop these, like, these sounds that no one's ever really heard before or heard in that way, the way that that kind of instrumentation is developing, I suppose, where that's heading and where, where I guess, we're going in terms of, like, listening to that stuff. I guess they've pioneered that. But Just to kick yeah. that off, I think it's insane and incredibly cool that uh, I think if this stuff did pop up in the 20th century, people would immediately be like, this is a cutting-edge contemporary artwork. And the way we're discussing mm. it right now and the way that people actually engage with it is just as pop music. Like, there, there's, no, there's no pretense of, of high art or transgression on your initial listen it's just oh this tune slaps this is a bop but that but i think then like you go outside that a bit and, i mean like i think i think for a lot of people 100 gex or like sophie's song pony boy um is like challenging yeah it is it is still kind of interesting though when each new track comes out there's not like an immediate response to i need to deconstruct this so i get the the hidden oh, technique no, it's or whatever it's just like has thankfully embraced what they do as as actual pop but i what you were saying, Jack, about the like, computer sounds, I like that. I, at least I haven't noticed them doing it before, but they really are discussing their um, their label identity as personal computer music on all the mm. fake websites they make. It says personal computer music, not PC music, in the sense of like it is quite personal. There is something strange about the bleeps and bloops that it's not that they're replicating mobile phone sounds or they're replicating modem dials or anything that obvious, but there's like a there's a familiarity for a certain generation built into some of the things they're doing musically. There, there was a tweet uh, that did the rounds a while ago. It was like, imagine being um, someone going to see Charlie XCX, uh, knowing her for Famous and other stuff, and then Vroom Vroom drops, like which is probably right. Charlie XCX's most angular, strange, aggressive-sounding <laughs> PC music track for that to play side-by-side side next to a really obvious pop hit. It's interesting, that sort of, like, that that sense of how an artist like her can just go, Foom, flick a switch, and now suddenly ideas that were never really in the pop mainstream are everywhere now. Yeah, uh, yeah. I highly recommend everyone should go watch, like, a Charlie XCX set from, like, 2014 on YouTube and watch one now. And just the sonic difference <laughs> of, like, she's got the band with her playing that Iconopop track, I Don't Care, and it's like jumping up and down with an organic drum kit in like the Pitchfork Festival in like 2013. And then it's now just like, 
I'm just dancing around letters with these weird <laughs> artificial bleep bloops and like all of all of the meme rappers popping out. It's it's super strange and quite cool. It's so good. <laughs> she released so many different projects, so many singles that were interesting to me, so many albums that all flirted with that sort of reinterpretive style um, of yeah, like using cliche to reveal a deeper sincerity. And I think that's what a lot of good collage works, whether music or video do do that. They point out a pattern, and then in pointing out that pattern, they're able to provoke a greater thought or a greater appreciation of the sincerity it takes to even engage with that pattern. Um, I guess my question was just, do you feel that Easy Mix is kind of... That's what it's evoking for you. It's kind of those thoughts or considerations for what, I guess, new media can be and collage media can be. It's kind of... Uh, like uh, emblematic I suppose of a way of considering different materials like that yeah I think it's also like considering them as as worthy of reinterpretation right you know you can put Ariana Grande side by side with ABBA with you know Jesse J with PC music which essentially is what it's doing is putting all of these things together um like when I listened to it I didn't really the first time and probably every time since I didn't really hear an irony in there despite not knowing the Ariana Grande track, I knew roughly that melody, and I knew it was her immediately the first time I heard Easy Mix. So it was like, this seems familiar, but something else is going on. And then the Jesse J track is, this is familiar to me, and it's doing something that it hadn't before. And I think that's what I found so compelling in re-listening to it, is it, it does approach its music, or its source material, with a level of care and also with a level of knowing its audience. Mm. Like I think in, in easy fun releasing that track, the expectation is that most of the listeners will know those songs, at least the top and tail, because they were both really huge pop hits. And so for easy fun, easy mix is a reinterpretation of two very big pop hits in a style somewhat synonymous with PC music, but also doing its own thing because i think the euphoria Mm. and the rise of that final section of easy mix with the jesse j track is i'm not sure any other pc music track has matched that sort of sustained ties in terms of yeah what it's going for yeah um just thinking I've, i've kind of partially lost the thought but i think that's kind of the parallel between both of your things it's that the way that that kind of decontextualization really highlights something else and i think that interests both of you, I suppose, in the way that you're... It's kind of the rabbit hole. It's like these things are all connected, but they're not connected, connected, I guess. And so you're you're kind of embracing that media and saying, well, this is malleable and there's, there's something here and it's kind of hard to discern, but it's very interesting, yeah. What you just said is, like, very true to um, the way I've, like, at least recently thought about the video works that I make. So I've like over the last few years, I moved from making video essays to making collage works for galleries. And all of those are just kind of like taking apart a set of films I'm given or a topic I'm given, whether that's Italian cannibal films or sci-fi B-movies from the 1960s. So I'll watch them all, figure out what interests me within that, and then reconfigure them as something else. Like the, the more of them I do, the more I realize that in reassembling them, the logic in the reassembly is mine alone. And in viewing them after some distance, uh, like months after I make them, I've realized the, what the works are, more than anything, are a reflection of my thinking through of a topic. 
like the way I've seen them politically or the way I've like become fixated on one person who appeared in four different films and how oddly wonderful I find it is seeing that actor again and again and again in these terrible films because you never understand what you're doing when you're making it you just you you think you know what you're doing and then later it like months after you've handed it in it becomes clear I think that that notion of re-watching something I've made and realizing it's it's my mental processes laid bare almost is something that definitely colors my opinion of something like easy mix or something like a collage film because you have to think back to I do at least how they put it together like what were the decisions that led to the creation of that or why this shot before this or why is this making me think of this topic and is that something the editor originally thought of or is that something that the the musician originally thought of uh, to kind of sum up I think I just found this on a on a PC music forum I'll read it to you guys it's um someone's kind of write up of how they thought or felt I suppose about easy mix and I just found it quite interesting the subdominant chord brings with it feelings of safety, satisfaction, and relaxation. In the Baroque period, composers would often modulate to the dominant key for feelings of excitement and anticipation. Then in later classical music, composers started modulating to the subdominant precisely to achieve an opposite effect. Upon reaching the subdominant chord in this context, Finn Keen adds a booming cushion of sub-bass, a rising siren, cranks up the reverb, and to achieve ultimate sensory overload, samples the ah 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 from Domino to echo my soul sighing with contentment at the overall beauty of the music. <laughs> I can't say enough what it feels like when I hear all of this happening at once. Truly, it's like witnessing the heavens opening up and ascending into a dreamy orange sky as depicted on the art for this release. That's, that's great. It's very like... it's. I mean, I agree with the second part, to quote Morgan Freeman in Seven... Um, I don't have the musical theory knowledge or background to explain to you why sure, the sure, back sure. half of Easy Mix works on me the way it does. I know yeah. from, again, perusing stuff like the PC Music Reddit or the YouTube comments or the SoundCloud comments, people talk about the key changes in that final section being, like, impossible. Like, right. just being like, this shouldn't be able to happen and it shouldn't work, but it works in ways that we never would have imagined. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think okay, you definitely do get that euphoric feeling of floating up to the heavens. It just is like, you know, I saw a, a comment on, I think it was SoundCloud tonight when I was looking it up again, which was like, if, if the final minute doesn't make you do a fist pump or punch the air, like you're not feeling anything. Because it really <laughs> yeah. does like give you that feeling, that, that last section of, um, yeah. So I do like that though, people tying in musical theory. It's like, it's nice when someone can explain to me exactly what's going on musically. For me, I'm just drawn to the form. I think it's an interesting way that someone's approached PC music. I I mean, like they have a lot of super talented people. And the thing about PC music that I think that comment sums up really perfectly is it's kind of always a bop. It's impossible to not enjoy and to like nod your head along or dance to, even though it might be doing super complex stuff or it might be breaking all the rules and stuff. And you can appreciate on that level. It's really, really difficult not to just feel taken with the music if you're into it or completely, completely yeah. repulsed by it. it. It's it's just visceral. It's a very visceral style of music production. And right. a bit of context for me, I used to make all my money DJing and I played a lot of bro step. And I have not <laughs> stayed up to date with the bro step scene, but I dip in and out. And what I've seen over the last like four years is the rigid structure of like kind of 140 to 150 BPM with a kick on one and a snare on three is still there. But the f- 
influence of PC music and sort of like deconstructed trap music has really forced its way in. A lot of stuff is mm. no longer melodic. It's just like specific grating sounds repeated in interesting <laughs> patterns and like just com- completely deconstructing the entire notion of what music is. Um, I'm not sure yeah. if I if that's PC music or you know more deconstructed traps, beatsy stuff sort of moving its way in. But um, yeah, I definitely think the future of music and music production is going to be weirder and weirder sounds with more rigid rules. The rules are going to get more and more rigid in the way that stuff gets structured, but it's going to lead to more subversion. You want something to be familiar enough so that people can approach it and give you the time of day to actually engage with the experimentation and the subversion. And I guess like the more Mm. the more familiar that bass becomes, like the more familiar that the bass of you know pop music is, um, the the more you can do within those constraints and confined space yeah just definitely i'll just talk about when me and connor were talking about doing the podcast and thanks so much for having us on um a big thing for us was not talking about <laughs> film i guess and like um sure. yeah diff- that's not obvious already when when you asked us uh, my like i messaged felix and i was like i can't talk about vertigo dude like it's yeah. probably the best thing i've seen but it's not my favorite thing but it's like <laughs> well i can't everyone's talk- talked about that like let's yeah, I can't talk about Sunset Boulevard, which when I get drilled for like, what's your favorite film? And people ask me, it's like, it's Sunset Boulevard. Why is it Sunset Boulevard? I like the movie. That's it. That's all I can tell <laughs> yeah. you. But like, it doesn't fully speak to me in some ways. And like another thing that's running through my head, it's like, oh, I could be like this book by like Mark Fisher is super formative to me. But it's like, I know that that has been more formative to other people who have more interesting things mm. to say about it. It's not it's not interesting for us to reaffirm things that other people know or have talked about as much as it is like 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 when we speak about it for me again it's when I watch things or when we watch things for for festival consideration or for programming it is all about like who can we recommend this to yeah. or who do we think this fits or will this fit with this series of shorts or it's mm. never paramount it's like, do we like it yeah it's like, it's more like a holistic approach to stuff and yeah I I think the the like notion of favorites is really interesting i think you're doing a really interesting podcast just because i feel like so different people have different sort of approaches to what what makes something special and what What makes them a favorite as well the notion of a favorite whereas i'm just very like not nothing fulfills that criteria it's too high a bar but yet you still kind of like chose something yeah i mean to go into the meta yeah i think it's i mean on the one level i think it's something that's kind of underdone, I suppose, to recommend one thing and kind of dive into it. Mm. But I think also, yeah, that act I find really, really interesting when someone says, this is my favourite thing of this. You can obviously have a subcategory, but it always, Mm. I think, really resembles, like, the bigger picture of of the other things and and why why that stands in relation to it. So, Yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. Thank you. So I used to be like a compulsive rater of films, like when I was right, at, yeah. you know, year 12 and then first year of university, I saw as many as I could. I would always give them a rating out of five. I would write it in a book. I would put it on IMDb. But recently I was like, this is, I don't believe any of this anymore. I don't, it's very weird for me. And I've become almost cynical in how I see a lot of film now. It's like, well, yeah. I'm just going to purge everything pre-January 2012. When I started writing film criticism, I think is when I can start trusting my taste almost. Like Felix sure. and I both, like I started four three the website um, with a friend Jeremy Elphick in May twenty fourteen, um, and then Felix came on in that first year as an editor. That for us was quite formative. From all I'm speaking, like all of the people who mm. were involved at the start of that website, and it's not really right. active now, um, mm. but 
in terms of my my opinions about film and how I think through it, I can only really trust myself from that point onwards because I was thinking about it in a different way um, yeah. because I, I'm always feel like I change how I view genres or mm. times. This is just how I think through things like this and like cataloging. Sure. He's being like, I'm going to watch films from the 1930s and none of them are going to be by very famous directors or very famous films. Like for better or worse, like someone's very passionate three and a half star review of some 1930s film on Letterboxd is more important to me than like where it sits in the canon. It's hard for the both of us and the reasons, like, when you first asked us, Jack, we, like, did have a conversation about, like, what is it like? Do either of us have favourites? Like, we don't want to pick a Mm. film because we don't trust our film opinions when it comes to, like, what is the best or the greatest. My my favourite thing is the competitive eating video. And I think that (laughs) uh, sincerity sincerity is pretty rare uh, in, in 2020 online. And it's weird to find something that perfectly straddles that line of sincerity and irony without trying to, um, and is more effective at making the sort of film that a lot of people out there want to make themselves through scripts, through Mm. workshopping and anything else, uh, just by essence of being incompetent. And I really would implore (laughs) people to go and watch this incredible, incredible internet video and watch it again, and watch it again. You'll get something new every single time. It's two minutes and thirty and we're seconds. We're gonna hit that six hundred. That's it. We've got to get it over the six hundred. You know what? I want it over a thousand by the end of the year. Um, <laughs> and I'm not gonna stop sharing it. But yeah, it, it it truly is like a pretty a pretty special video for me. Um, and yeah, I again, I, I think some of you are gonna have the same response as me. You're gonna you're gonna have an emotional reaction to this video that you're not expecting, uh, and that it's not shooting for. And that's kind of beautiful. But it's much less heartwarming. Um, but yeah, my favorite pop song is Easy Mix by Easy Fun. And I think it is because it is a pop song about loving pop songs. It's about embracing and appreciating mm. the notion of ridiculously like positive, warm melodies and having like this this embedded sense of of links to cultural, like pop culture movements and what's happening now and what's going on now. And I think it is able to peg something like outside of that timeline using things that were very popular in 2015. I think that's why it's so still powerful and still exciting and strange in 2020. Um, and I hope that people who, who approach it are also surprised by it. Um, I think it, it wonderfully, the last like minute and a bit of it, I think is perfect, like utterly perfect. I think it, it, it knows how to put you in a position as a listener in a way that very few songs do. It knows how, like, exactly where you need to be for that final section to feel the way it does. It's a wonderful sort of on-ramp almost to to weird and wonderful remixes and PC music content. And, yeah, I hope I hope people give it a go because it's um, certainly an interesting way to spend seven minutes. Great. And so all up, it's just under ten minutes, ten minutes of your life. That's it. That's it. That's, seconds I mean, to swap. Like, exactly. Unlike other guests, we're not asking a lot of you. We're just no, asking for ten minutes. You don't minutes have to read a book. I mean, you don't have to exactly. watch a movie. Exactly. Connor's just asking about a half minute video. Listen to a seven minute song. And Connor's asking about three times as much as I'm asking. So yeah, mine's exactly. value for money. Wait, Connor's is value for money. Mine's value. And for yours time. is a bargain. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the theme is sincerity. I think. Yeah. Mm. Surprising sincerity. Mm.
Yeah. That's what that's what we do at Static Vision: surprise people with sincerity <laughs> when they expect the irony. Yeah, yeah, uh, not untrue. I don't know. So yeah, if you're listening, uh, links to Static Vision stuff, the videos, the stuff I've referenced, and all of that will be in the the description. You can follow my stuff everywhere. This is my favorite thing: T I M F T. That's it. Incredible. Thanks that's for it. having us. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you very much. Until next time. <laughs>